welcome back to Aligning America. We got a lot to talk to and cover, so let's get into this. First off, Joe Biden has won, at least is predicted to have won, the 2020 presidential election. What does this mean? I mean, obviously, there were celebrations, there were near, you know, riots. We had conglomerations of folks going into uh, polling places, going into election buildings. We've seen a good amount of unrest, though this was to be expected from either side, the losing side, and of course, jubilation from the winning side. This isn't a shock here. Um, largely, what does a Biden presidency mean? What does a Biden victory mean? Um, it means the Republican Party has some serious soul searching to do. And quite frankly, I think they're they're not going to come to the same conclusion. Not every Republican will come to the same conclusion. And much like what I think will await the Democratic Party some 10 to 20 years from now, I think we're going to have a, a Ross Perot-esque split, a Bull Moose Party-esque split between the populists and the traditional conservatives. And I, I can't tell you what leadership will look like. I can't tell you what any of that will look like. What I can say is the Republican Party was dealt to defeat and the populism that they thought had propped them through the victory of an establishment candidate just came crashing down. Now, that isn't to say it wasn't a close race, and that isn't to say that there weren't a number of factors giving Joe Biden the edge here. I think general disdain for the president powered him through the election. It wasn't his policies, and in fact, I think that was largely his weakest point. But um, th th there's a lot going on. That we, we can talk and talk and talk about, and we will as these weeks keep going through. Uh, we're going to be getting more information on what Biden's cabinet will look like, more information on real policy. We've seen him drop a new website that has his new transitional plan for coronavirus handling. We've seen, you know, uh, Kamala Harris has gone out and once again reiterated some uh at least some support for monetary reimbursement, large scale, you know, check bouncing for people all across the, the nation. Um, hopefully without means testing, I, I would prefer to see it being a universal universal application, um, largely because I think there are problems that you encounter partisan wise if you, if you want to make it uh, means tested. But that said, I think uh, Kamala Harris can really drive the bus on this. And I think Joe Biden, at least coming out with these early stage uh, propositions, is going to make him a more favorable president in the very beginning. Though I think as this presidency moves on, and I think everyone understands this, we're going to get a lot more um, inter-democratic scuffles. We're going to see a lot of the Democratic Party kind of rebel on the establishment part. I think the AOC wing is going to really put his feet to the fire when it comes to some more progressive policies that they want passed, though that's all going to call uh, come down to what the Senate looks like come January 5th, which we will get into later, the very end of this show. So stick around. I'll give you more information on why January 5th is oh so important. But for the most part, as a Biden presidency, a 306 victory, which is, as you may recall, the exact number of electoral votes that Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton by in 2016. There's a little bit of poetic justice there. Um, well, we're seeing, uh, not only the Georgia victory, put, you know, pulling them through, but the Arizona victory, these two states flipping doubtlessly gave, uh, or, or rather will embolden the Biden administration and Democrats to come because of course they feel like these are maybe not safe states, but especially Georgia with a shifting demographic, it looks to be safe in the coming years and which could be an 
enormous gain. That means that the Democrats could theoretically start losing Pennsylvania on a regular basis or Wisconsin or Michigan. They could give up that that stalwart Central American uh, defense that they, they they needed to protect and they lost in 2016. So, of course, Georgia shifting with 16 electoral votes. Uh, mind you, that's more than most of the Midwest states. Um, it, it's a good place to be in going forward as the party. Though, of course, we can't take either of them for granted. And, and I don't think the Democrats really can. And I'm not sure if they will. But but all things considered, it looks great for the both of them. And I think it largely comes down to some personal animosity that Arizona has with the president. And we'll, we'll get into that later. But largely, I think it's it's just a shifting demographic in Georgia that they can really count on going forward. And, and it, it puts them in a good spot. It's it's hard to deny. Um, Joe Biden, of course, is his administration has appeared to be as centrist as possible. They've tried to make it as moderate as possible. They've had people like John Kasich come into the DNC to, you know, speak on the behalf of Republicans and centrists and moderates. It's a very odd position to be in as they're pleasing people outside the party at the expense of a lot of those inside the party. And is this a healthy or unhealthy dynamic? I'm not really sure, especially not for the party as a whole, though for their victory chances, I'm sure it gave them the edge, especially in some of those swing states. So you can't necessarily get mad at the, the you know, if you're a Democrat, it's difficult to get mad at the, uh, at least the application of, of using these centrist keynote speakers, though for the large part, I think a lot of the disappointment comes from Joe Biden's cabinet that he has, you know, started signaling and, and put out feelers for who he wants in the cabinet. We have some pretty definite choices. Suzanne Rice is an obvious one. Another obvious one would be Pete Buttigieg from, uh, you know, the early Democratic primary. He was one of the rising stars. He, being a veteran, would make a, a good choice for the Veterans Affair. Um, it, it really does look a lot like an Obama cabinet with a very right-wing skew. It looks like, uh, of course, we, we don't have any idea of who those right-wingers might be, but he's already came out to say that he would be fine with having Republicans in his cabinet, which inter-party cabinet members is not something that we've seen in quite some time, at least not on a larger scale. Um, and it could be an interesting tactic if this is how he wants to push into 2024, if they want to push into the you know 2022 uh, races. It makes sense, again, if you're reeling from a populist president and a lot of Republicans want to come over, but I just don't know if it'll hold the farther left Democrats together, especially if you want to talk about those 2020, I mean, 2022 um, primaries. If you want to see a lot of status quo Democrats get primary by more progressive uh, opponents, that's one way to do it is to antagonize them by building a cabinet made out of largely conservative or at least moderate Democrats and and even some left-leaning Republicans. That's a dangerous game to play. It's a great, great general strategy, but it doesn't really play well with inside the party. So we'll have to see how it all plays out. And and is it unhealthy or healthy for the party? You could argue that it would make for a great unifying strategy, but for the party, that's hard to say. It it really is. And as the the wounds from 2020 exacerbate the, the issues with what is a traditional Republican versus what is a populist Republican and what that split may look like going forward, electorally speaking, I'm sure this next 2024 primary is going to give us an excellent, excellent highlight of, of I'm sure, two candidates who are going to go neck and neck proposing very and espousing very different ideals for the Republican Party and which one wins, I can't say. And if they, you know, 
quite frankly, break off and start a new party, or rather, more likely, latch on to the Libertarian ticket, which could play for a Ross Perot-style three-way, which would inevitably lead to a Democratic victory. Of course, that race, that three-way race would not go well for the Republicans, and I think they know that, though that may be a bullet they're willing to bite if it means holding the integrity of their party, if that that's truly how they want to play it, though I doubt it, as integrity has never been a, you know, a strong point of modern politicians. Uh, all things considered, the Democrats, like I said, if, if this is the angle they want to play, playing centrist, playing moderate, you may see this, you know, 10 years down the road, an AOC-style presidency through the Green Party, much like they could do with the Libertarian Party. I could see a split there, and quite frankly, with a popular figure like that, even 5, 10, 15% of the vote could mean a lot. Again, a three-way race will almost guarantee the opponent a victory, so that's a dangerous game to play, and those are seeds you don't want to sow, uh, especially right now, given the tumultuous time and with climate change coming up to the you know forefront of what will soon be national politics. Uh, it's a difficult game to play, and, and we'll see if it pays off. Moving on, talked enough about Biden there. I think we should jump over to the uh, the other side of the aisle. We've got the Republicans sort of reeling, sort of in denial. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, you would expect the concession speech, or, or maybe you wouldn't, given the nature of our president. Um, he has refused to concede, and people are starting to get a little bit antsy. As, of course, you have the QAnon populist wing of the party, who thinks that's an exceptional show of strength and that God will smite the Democrats, something across those, you know, along those lines. Uh, and then you have the more moderate wing of the party, people with, you know, spokespeople like Romney or Chris Wallace on Fox News. These folks come out and say, obviously, Trump has lost. It's time to concede. It's time to, you know, build better for 2024, 2022. Let's, you know, focus on the party. Let's focus on our strengths. Let's focus on building as a nation. These people are having a lot of difficulty when the president himself won't accept the, the nature of the race. And people like uh, Lindsey Graham do not make it much easier for him, as he's quoted as saying, if Donald Trump concedes, this will be the end of the Republican. You'll never elect a single Republican ever again, which I'm not sure what he means by that. There's a few ways to take it. Uh, some people thought that he was saying that if Donald Trump conceded, it would look weak and it would look like the Republicans are never going to try and win an election uh, as they are assuming that this is a fraudulent election, though they've provided absolutely no evidence of the case. Um, you, you could take it that way. You could say that Lindsey Graham is simply stating that the nature, if, if, if Donald Trump goes back on his word now, that they're going to have a lot of issues going forward with legitimacy. It's unsure. I'm not sure what he's trying to play on exactly. Though, largely speaking, most people have come to accept that he thinks it's, uh, you know, they've planted their flag on the hill and they can't back down now. It would look weak and they would not have a chance running with any sort of backbone in these next elections, which I'm not sure if that's even the case. Of course, he's probably being quite a good deal facetious here. But all things considered, in sincerity, I actually disagree with him. I think it would be a great look if they could finally come out and, and give a John McCain-style speech, especially when going up against such a moderate opponent. I don't think they would have to concede saying anything of the sort of, oh, the referendum has obviously shown that Medicare for All is the victor here and that the Republicans need to you know come to grapple with the popular majority. That, that's not at all what they would have to come out and say. They could make a very basic... Congratulations, you beat us. 
we're strong, we you know either made a misstep or or you can even deflect and say you know our our support you could put the blame on the supporters either way you know if that you know pride's not willing either way you should concede um and even looking back on McCain's speech which recently circulated recirculated i suppose just due to its um interesting nature he, during his speech you can hear his own constituents boo him but him holding fast set up for a good 2012 20 uh you know 2008 was quite the blowout so 2012 got him a lot closer and you can argue that that was all obama's misplays during his first four years but all things considered it didn't destroy their chances it was a good concession speech and it made them look good made them look honorable so the republican party needs to return to that if they have any chance of beating another establishment candidate I don't think that a populist outsider candidate is really going to do all that much unless you bring it in with an entirely different attitude. I don't think the bully is going to play quite as well as it did in 2016. I've said it before on this podcast. I'll say it again. It really comes down to a character play. Hillary Clinton was largely disliked. Joe Biden is not. For that reason, it's not as fun to watch him. You know, It's not fun to see Donald Trump bully Joe Biden when Joe Biden's the fan favorite. It's fun to watch him trash Hillary because she has a lot of skeletons and a lot of closets and a lot of people just don't like her. And she's not she doesn't try to get people to like her. And that's her problem when it comes to Joe Biden. He's a goofball. He quoted recently as and this is just an example of him having a sense of humor, which was fairly evident that that Hillary did not. Uh, when asked by the BBC uh, if, if he could have a comment on his own victory and his own apparent victory, he said, well, I'm Irish, and then laughed it off. Jokes like that, small little quips of humor, smiles, those uh, gifable moments make him a much more likable candidate, make him a much more Kennedy-esque you know, uh, candidate for the, the masses, for the home masses, looks great on television. Hillary did not. So I think Donald Trump's rhetoric just won't work come 2024. And it has been uh, stated now that he already has floated the idea of running, um, whether he would or one of his sons or daughters um, could possibly run to continue that dynasty. It's unsure if they want new blood or if they want someone like Nikki Haley to come in and carry the populist banner with a little bit more respect on the name. Also a viable option, looking at people like... Um, Mark Cuban as another outsider, he could probably run within the Republican Party, famous businessman, same appeal, much nicer guy. Um, I could see myself voting for a Mark Cuban candidate if he had the right economic policies that I could get behind, if he was willing to move moderately to the left on social issues. There's an argument to be made for people like that, but it's not going to work if they're going to run another establishment Republican uh, even with someone like a Romney with a lot of great appeal to the general population with his impeachment vote and whatnot, the future of the Republican Party looks bleak at that. It's just something that needs to be said. I'm not a Republican strategist, so it's really not my issue, but it is difficult to look forward and see any hope in their candidates, current candidates at any rate, especially with people like Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz. Uh, they don't look good in the national light. People like DeSantos totally, totally fumbled the ball, at least PR-wise in Florida over the coronavirus. He was a rising star. It doesn't look good for him now. It's difficult to see a Republican surge come 2022 or 2024 if they don't lean into populism. But at the same time, we've already proven that it doesn't work. 
So it's a difficult spot to be in, all things considered. It's going to be a rough couple of years for Republicans, and they better hope Joe Biden makes a good number of missteps. Uh, and hopefully, if you know, if I was a Republican strategist, I would be hoping for them to move far to the left, especially if they're given that 50-50 Senate that we'll talk about in just a minute. Uh, that would be my best bet. And, and honestly, with Donald Trump floundering here, refusing to concede every day that passes that he refuses to concede makes him look worse and worse and worse. And that party, I'm sure party officials and close advisors have got to be scrambling for a way to get him to concede because it just isn't a tenable position. As Chris Wallace pointed out today on Fox News, they called the election for Joe Biden on Fox News today. And it's looking bad. It's 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 now becoming apparent to supporters of both Fox News and Donald Trump, uh, largely being one of the the main you know the mainstream media, quote unquote, or the lamestream media, as Donald Trump said today, because he doesn't believe that it should be their job to call the election. Thus, asking or rather begging the question, who gets to call the election? But I suppose that wasn't covered in his briefing. So, all things considered, the Republican Party it looks bleak and. Uh, it's, it's going to be a rough couple of years. All right, and moving on, here's some good news for Republicans. Don't lose faith. Don't lose hope. Don't jump from the top story of the skyscrapers. It's not over yet. The stock market's still there. Uh, though in sincerity, it, it, it is actually looking quite good if you want to go past national politics and go into state party politics for Republicans. And, and there are a few obvious reasons why, uh, and I'm just going to jump right into them. One, it's the Senate race. Why, what do I mean by that? And I think what came to a, a sh- as a very large shock to a lot of us, um, looking at Senate ro- uh, race results, we've seen across the board Republicans held on, and some by slim margins and some by not. Um, people who were slated to be utterly defeated past the point of, uh, you know, era of polls and polling statistical data, people like uh, Suzanne Collins from Maine, she held on past the point of, of what was supposed to be, you know, statistical average. She was supposed to be statistically unable to win. And here she is with a victory holding on. You can attribute it to her vote on the Supreme Court. You can attribute it to a number of things. But all that really matters at the end of the day is that her messaging worked. And holding on means it's one more seat. And, and this is really going to be the prevalent theme for this little section that I'm going over. One more seat for the Republicans gives them a much safer uh, four-year term with Joe Biden in office because if he can't do anything, if the Senate can effectively handicap him during his presidency, it doesn't matter that Trump lost. In fact, they could still put forward legislation that could get passed with Joe Biden being, you know, the great unifier and all that. Uh, you could see him conceivably bending to the Republicans just to get a higher approval rating, which may or may not be worth it, especially come 2024 when they're, they're likely to run a more leftist president than Joe Biden. It's pretty it's pretty hard to get any more centrist than this. I, I, I'm not sure where it's going to move him, but uh, we will certainly see. Um, so Collins is safe in Maine, was not expecting. She was down more than 5%. Um, outside of the margin of error with some 37% approval, still pulled it out. Moving on to Montana, a much closer race. It was Steve Daines versus Steve Bullock. The Steves went at it, and and Steve won, though it was the uh, Republican who came out on top, Steve Daines. Former Governor Steve Bullock could not grab the seat. Um, you can argue whether this was a misplay, whether he should have held on to the governorship. 
I'm not sure if he could have been able to do either. But all things considered, like I said, Republicans held on. They held on to their seat and they needed to. Because as we we continue down this list, it's going to be more and more apparent that they needed to hold every single one of these seats, especially when I go over what's happening in Georgia as we speak at the very end of this episode. Um, Another race, Jamie Harrison, had a lot of high hopes. We saw some, some tied polls. We saw some very close polls for Jamie Harrison going up against Lindsey Graham, but he was soundly defeated. He needed to swing a whole 5%. It was 45 to 55. It just wasn't enough for Jamie to pull, you know, pull it out. And that's understood. It was South Carolina. It still went red in the national election. People had hopes, but of course, a lot of those hopes were dashed come election night. It was a very, very, very close election. I'd like to remind everybody this while on paper looks like a clean democratic sweep with over, you know, 300 electoral votes for the Democrats. That doesn't mean it was close. In fact, it was one of the closest uh, general population uh, votes that we had seen in, in quite some time. Trump only barely losing. So again, with that said, we're looking at another safe seat in South Carolina that while it may be challenged, and of course, every time that these Senate seats are challenged, it makes them look weaker and weaker and weaker. And that's what Beto did back in Texas. And that's what uh, Jamie Harrison just did in the Senate. Though there are Senate seats that, of course, Democrats were kind of hoping for to be a little bit closer that really weren't um, point your laser pointers to Kentucky. That was an absolute blowout. Wasn't even close. Mitch McConnell held on to his seat by a large, large margin. Continues to be the oldest senator with, I believe, the longest sitting senator in either U.S. history or current U.S. history. I, I can't remember. Point is, he's old. He's really, really old, uh, nearly 80 years old, I believe. He has held a seat for some 30, 30 plus years, maybe even 40 plus years. Man's old. I mean, that's the, the point what I'm getting at. Man is old, and he's been there for a long time, and he's not going away. And Amy McGrath wasn't the right person to put up against. You could say Charles Booker was the correct person to run against him. I'm not going to, you know, that's that's long past, long past. That was way back in the primary season. All that matters now is that Mitch McConnell devastated her. And quite frankly, it was a huge waste of Democratic resources. I was talking to a colleague about this, and I believe that the money, the hundreds of millions that they raised would have been much better spent on many other races. It's not to say that Mitch McConnell shouldn't be out of the Senate, that the Democrats couldn't beat him. There are people they could run that I'm sure could. But quite frankly, being so established like that, it's going to be difficult. And I don't know if money is quite the compounding factor that they think it is. I think it works a lot better in unstable races, in races against either new or non-incumbents. That's where you want to spend your money. That's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. You're not going to get it against someone who's, you know, quite frankly, had people that have voted for him for 20-something years. That's ridiculous. And especially being such a high-profile national figure, while it would be an amazing upset, Amy's not the one to do it. Her messaging was not what they were looking for. Again, all things considered, Republicans hold another seat. As we continue into this final section, and I'm not even going to have a break, we're just going to go right into it. It's the Georgia runoffs. The Georgia runoffs, well, they had two seats. And while they're usually staggered elections, there was a special election forcing them both to be held in the same year. Um, you've got uh, Ossoff versus Perdue, Ossoff being the uh, Democrat, Perdue being the Republican incumbent. Uh, Ossoff actually ran against him in, I believe, 2017, 2018, didn't work out. Uh, Loeffler versus uh, Warnock. 
Warnick is a semi-progressive, more more progressive reverend. Lawfer is not. She's a, she was appointed by special election, I believe, or special appointment, rather, I believe. She, well, I know she is the special election, but I believe that she was appointed by Trump directly. Uh, there were medical issues with the senator who had the seat beforehand, if I'm not mistaken, though I don't have a lot of uh, knowledge on the subject. All things considered, it, it was really a, a great test of newcomer versus old. We had one seat, or rather one race, that is very much two established politicians and another that are very new into the limelight style politicians. You could hardly even call them politicians. Both seats are, are truly needed for the 50-50 tie, and, and I've been referencing it all episode, and I'm going to explain my my logic, the, the logic behind this. Um, the Democratic, or rather the Senate here, as stands, if both of these go red, they stay red, you're looking at a 52-48 Senate. 48 Democrats, 52 Republicans. What does that mean? Quite frankly, that means the Republicans can block every single piece of legislature that the Democrats would try and put through. That entire, you know, th that's the whole gun control, climate change, Medicare, well, any any healthcare, really, healthcare reform, education reform, any, you know, mass pardonings or any, you know, real criminal justice reform. These things will never get done with a 48-52. It's just not going to happen, especially with a lot of, you know, shaky Democrats in, in more precarious places. They're really not going to uh, vote for these things if they don't know that there's at least a confirmed majority, which you can't do with, a, you know, you can't trust two Republican senators to either stick to their word or to come across the aisle unexpectedly. It's just not going to happen, even with people like Suzanne Collins, who wants to keep her seat in a you know, a precarious independent county, it doesn't matter. Uh, she's going to vote with Republican lines because that's still been working for her. And as we can see, she defies statistical nature to retain her seat. So it's 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 not going to look like any real passage of, of any quantifiable legislature would be put through without any genuine 50-50. Why 50-50? You would expect that to be another standstill. Well, for those who don't know, if it is a 50-50 tie in the Senate, there's this magical intervention by Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris is going to be the well current vice president-elect. She would be the final vote. If there's a 50-50, the vice president gets to assume the senatorial position and gets to cast one vote. This, of course, would break the tie, making it 51-50. Democrats would walk away with you know, whatever legislature that they try to put through. Having passed the Senate with the obvious Democratic majority in the House, it would be a nearly guaranteed pass in the House. And of course, Joe Biden sitting at the executive branch. No, it is not a trinity. It is not a perfect trinity at any rate. But it, it would still guarantee that at least some of the core stuff that Joe Biden is going to try and pass. Lord knows what that may be. He doesn't like saying. But if it gets passed, any you know real meaningful legislature gets passed, it can get passed. So these two elections, they're, why, why are they runoff elections? Why are they being held at a weird time? Well, they were both held on election night. But because of Georgia's laws in the 1960s uh, to uh, you know ensure white power, and I don't mean that in like a, a, a call-out name, I just mean white supremacy as in continued domination of the white class in the rural South, or at least the South, during the 1960s, 
post, you know, uh, integration, you had a lot of racial tension and what their solution was, you know, there was no outright Jim Crow voter suppression allowed. Their solution was instead of letting Democrats and and largely black voters and black representatives or, you know, candidates who would do a lot better in a crowded field, they ensured that there wouldn't be a crowded field. So during the election night, if no one gets over 50%, then the top two contenders go into a runoff election where it is decided between those two because they have an open primary as as is pretty standard. Uh, you know, you have some 10 to 20 uh, people who actually run in the election. And of course, this, this generally splits the vote. Uh, you have multiple Democrats and multiple Republicans running for the chance to be in the runoff. So, you know, with that crowded of a field, it was theorized that black voters would rally around one in the 1960s and that it would be a black representative or a black senator. And then, of course, that would be a major upset in Georgia who wanted to keep the status quo of at least a higher white upper level. Um, so this weird quirk from a, you know, a racially tense era has now carried over into what could be two very, very important races. You have these two races, Warnock and Ossoff, if they can get their races and they can succeed, that puts us at 50-50. That gives the Democrats a fighting chance to pass pass legislature in the Senate. And then, of course, throughout the government during this four-year tenure as president for Joe Biden. If not, however, uh, it's nearly guaranteed that it would be somewhat of a lame duck presidency. He wouldn't be able to do anything. So all of this is to conclude that the Democrats and the Republicans are going to be all eyes on Georgia for the next few months as the election is not held till January 5th, I believe. So with that said, you're going to see millions and millions and millions of dollars coming in from both sides, from interest groups on both sides to make sure that these candidates are at least well-funded and if not well-funded, at least well-supported with the grassroots bases that they have there themselves. Uh, You see prominent figures on both sides promising to go down. Bernie Sanders has already promised that he would uh, at least make some motions to go down to Georgia. Andrew Yang says he's going to be appearing in Georgia for both races. I believe they've both reached out to him or he's both, you know, reached out to both of them. Uh, You've seen Republican senators voice their large support, especially with a lot of southern states being in such close proximity with a large Republican base coming out of them. You've seen people like Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell not only offer money, but manpower from the race bases that they have. They're, you know, winning their races, the supporters that they had and their, you know, campaign machines can be maneuvered down to Georgia, maybe more difficult for places, you know, like California would be difficult to fly your whole team out to Georgia. But it's a full, you know, a full scale mobilization of a national organization into a state scale. And it's going to be like Iowa during the primaries because it's going to be crowded and there's going to be a lot of money pouring into a relatively, not to say unimportant, any sort of insult, rather some overlooked states and counties that are going to be receiving a lot of attention come this late December, early, well, quite frankly, early November all the way to to January. It looks like both of them are in a pretty dead heat. That said, Ossoff has a better chance just due to his name recognition. He's already run for this, and granted, he lost, but he has name recognition, which puts him ahead. Warnock, however, he's he's a relatively uh, unknown personage, um, and he's really banking on a lot of that that African-American vote that he's going to need to turn out. 
especially the young vote again, which we know is unreliable. But uh, if, if either of them hope to win, that's what they need to see, especially with the changing demographic in Georgia. That's that's what they're going to need to turn out if they want to flip this these Senate seats. And if they do, that's incredible. And you want to talk about changing demographics. You look to Arizona, largely only flipping blue this election. I mean, it was by close margins, too, was because of the personal animosity that Donald Trump has for the state, the state in which John McCain represented for many, many years, him having such a tenuous relationship with Donald Trump. Of course, Donald Trump having insulted his record as a veteran and uh, his, his you know mental status and his status as a, a sick man, while John McCain fired back, claiming he's not a real Republican, that he's much of a charlatan as any. Of course, these two going on, John McCain passing in 2018, uh, come this election, we saw John McCain's family, especially prominent conservative on The View, Megan McCain, uh, who generally voices very, very strongly for the Republicans, came out against Donald Trump saying she would vote for Joe Biden, a unifier and someone she generally disagrees with over the man who insulted her father and, and what he stood for. And I think Megan McCain and I, I forget the mother's name, the, the widow of, of John McCain, they both came out in support of Joe Biden and actively campaigned with Joe Biden in Arizona. So I believe that was more of an anomaly than anything, though, of course, the precedent is set, especially with Mark Kelly taking the Senate seat there. It looks good for Democrats in the future, and, and they can hope that the rising Hispanic population would vote, though statistics show and polls show that Hispanics actually swung more conservatively this election than they did back in 2016. There's a lot to talk about there, but it's not for today, really. What it really highlights between these two states that flipped blue that were unexpectedly so, uh, you look at Georgia and it's less anomalous. It looks more demographic. It looks more systemic. It looks more like a genuinely flipping state, much like Colorado in the early you know 2000s, now a safely blue state, especially with Cory Gardner losing to Hickenlooper in Colorado, the Senate seat there. Uh, it looks much more like a purple state now, much more like a changing state. And and you can argue that Florida is the give and take there because they look to be increasingly Republican while Georgia looks to be increasingly Democratic. And I think that's a trade that Democrats are going to have to take at face value and accept, especially with a lot of this, the counties that they were hoping would return to the Obama coalition just didn't this election. And they seem to be firmly Republican, firmly Trump. It's a dangerous game to play, but it's a it's it's at least a give and take and not just a loss. So if they can flip both these Senate seats and with the national election under the belt, it looks really good for a future Democratic Georgia. The Democrats have to be pleased with these results. And again, it's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of resources and a lot of manpower, but it can be done. And that's quite frankly what we're going to leave off with. It's been a, you know, a very long election season. I know a lot of people out there uh, quite exhausted, happy, sad, either or. I mean, it's it's Joe Biden. Here's what I'll say as my, my closing piece. I don't think Joe Biden is going to make any radical change. And I'm sure that makes a lot of people unhappy. And I'm sure that makes people uh, a lot of people happy because I know there are people out there who are Republicans that do not want to see a leftist shift and there are a lot of leftists out there that do not want to see a centrist shift. And I think what we need to take on face value is what Joe Biden was talking about in his speech. 
uh, his acceptance, pseudo acceptance speech at any rate. Uh, he made a case for loving thy neighbor. He made a, a lot of, you know, in the context, of course, but he made a lot of really, really quite honestly, heartwarming uh, statements. His his statements on talking about, you know, decreasing the temperature, a funny play on a climate change, you know, plea, as well as, you know, quite frankly, reducing the tension of the nation. It's It's been a tough four years for a lot of people. Been a, it's been a tough four years to wake up to some some pretty crazy news, and it, it's not all Trump for the record. It's been a crazy year, especially 2020, but all, all of these past four years, I mean, it, it was rather just a, you know, salt on the wound sort of situation, I think, for a lot of people. So, yes, I mean, of course, there are a lot of people, especially where I live, who are very pleased to see Donald Trump lose, but you need to remind yourself that in 2016, those same people were incredibly devastated to see Donald Trump win and to see Hillary Clinton lose. So you need to remind yourself that civility must reign while, yes, you may be happy and please celebrate. I mean, be as happy as you want, but do not put down the people who have lost. At least show them the respect that you would have liked to receive back in 2016 that they didn't show you because it's on you to be the better person when it comes to these things. And, and I, I, I find it hilarious to watch these very same people tell their children, you know, treat others how you want to be treated, and then turn around and, and you know, get into a Twitter fight over, haha, you voted for Trump, I hope you're, you know, you're, you're, your kids get in a car accident. I mean, it's truly abhorrent to see the things these people say. So you need to remind yourself that, yes, Donald Trump lost. He was not someone that a lot of people liked. With that said, 2024, there will be another election, and if the Democrats lose there, you'll be reminded that that it's not so wonderful to lose. So you need to remind yourself that they are, as Joe Biden said in, in his close, you know, his, his acceptance speech. We need to remind ourselves that they are not enemies. They are political rivals. They are people with different agendas. That does not make them enemies. We all love America. We love it because the Democrats love it. They want to change it for the better. The Republicans want to keep it the same way because they love it. It's it's both stemming from love, and that's something that we all need to understand. We all need at least be able to get behind if we want to get anything done. Thank you for listening through to the end. We'd really appreciate it if you check us out at Aligning America on Instagram and Twitter. And if you really enjoyed it, and want more content like this, be sure to head over to our Patreon to ensure we can keep putting out episodes, changing hearts and minds one podcast at a time. Thank you.